Well, day and welcome uh, to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt. It's great you're choosing to watch with us today. Uh, this ministry has been pe- prepared for the 11th of December, 2022. And as we begin, hear these words of scripture from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 19. O people in Zion who dwell at Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. The Lord will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. He will cause his majestic voice to be heard. Well, friends, we come together to hear from God's word today exactly that, what we've just heard. And so before we do that, let's first go to a time of praise where we lift our eyes, our vision and our voices to God. be 
Well, friends, as we come to hear from God's word, let me first pause and pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that as your people who look forward to the birthday of Christ, that we would experience the joy of salvation and celebrate that feast with love and thanksgiving. And Lord, we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we come to God's word, our Bible readings today uh, firstly begin in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And then picking up again in verses 26 and 7. Our psalm for today is Psalm 25, especially looking at verses 8 to 15. And our New Testament passage, which I will share with us from in just a moment, is John chapter 1. We're starting a new series. John 1, uh, we're working through the first three chapters over the next few weeks. We're today in John 1, verses 1 through to 13. And so let me encourage you to pause the video now to stop and read that for yourself Read it with the people you're with, and then we'll come back and think about it together. Well, let's pray as we come to think about God's word together now. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we open your word, as we begin to look into John's gospel, that you would help us to see what you want us to see, that you would help us to explore this and hear you speak clearly so that we, this Christmas time, would give you the praise with our lives. Amen. Well, I wonder how you see yourself. If you were to finish the sentence, I am, how would the rest of that go, I wonder? Uh, I think we'd each finish that in different ways according to what we think is most important about ourselves. Uh, We care about how other people see us, we do. And so perhaps our identity is tied up with our title, what we do for work. Uh, our political party that we identify with, or maybe just the different or how high we've climbed on at the various ladders that we're, that we're involved in. Maybe for some, it's tied up with our leisure on the weekend, our golf handicap, or it may be tied up with what our retirement looks like. Maybe that's where our, our, our identity is. There are a whole bunch of what different ways that each of us are known. But I wonder, the question I want you to ask is, which of those is the most important to you? Which of the ways that we are known is the most important for your self-identity? Uh, we can battle with how people see us. And perhaps that overflows into the way that we choose, buy it, and give presents at Christmas time. But I think it's worth thinking about. Now, for us, as we roll into the Christmas season... At church here, as we start to open up John's biographical account of Jesus' life, I want you to see today that God actually has a new identity for you. And this is, if you will, the greatest gift that we could ever receive. Now, John's account of Jesus' life, it's it's rich. It's like some of the richest and thickest chocolate cake you'll ever get into. Now, St. Augustine, the one for whom our church is named after, he said this as he was reading John's Gospel. He said it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in, but it's also shallow enough that a child won't drown. 
And so as we go uh, through the first three chapters of John's Gospel over the next seven weeks or so, uh, Adam and I are going to attempt to draw out some of the richness, some of the goodness of this, of this part of God's Word without also being engulfed by just how much is hiding away here for us to discover as well. And so, let's get into it. Let's start. John chapter 1, verse 1. How does he start? In the beginning. Well, John opens his gospel in the same way that the, the Bible starts back in Genesis. These are the first words. In the beginning, it's how it starts. John wants you to know that this is part of the same story. This is part of God's story. But I think this opening is also a little bit, a little bit of a strange statement. He says, in the beginning was the word. And you might say, what does that mean? It sounds a little bit abstract, perhaps a little impersonal in one sense. But not this word. No, in fact, it is personal. As we keep reading verses 2 to 4, John goes, able, John goes on to talk about him exactly that way. Him with pronouns. He, him. Hey, since this is, we're reading uh, John's account of Jesus' life, it should be no surprise that Jesus is exactly who John's talking about when he says the word here. He doesn't actually use Jesus' name until further down when we get to verse 17. But nevertheless, this is who John is speaking about. Jesus, the word, that's how he identifies him. Now, at Christmas time, it's usually Matthew's gospel that gets the, the, the attention for being the one that traces Jesus' genealogy uh, back through King David, through Abraham, all the way back to Adam. But here, John goes one step further. He traces it back to before our world even, be, even existed, to the very beginning, to eternity, before time even began. But why, you might ask still, why does he call him the Word? I wonder what you think. Well, in, in Greek, the original language of the New Testament, the word for word here is logos. Now, you may have already known that, but logos, it can take on different meanings according to when it's used. Uh, but in Greek, in early philosophical Greek thought, the logos is thought of to be the kind of rational thing through which everything is made, kind of the, the DNA of reality, or even the mind of God, if you like. And so what John's saying here might ring true for kind of his uh, Greek speaking and reading uh, audience. But actually, I think there's more than that going on here. As we look at the Old Testament, we see God's word actually pops up a whole bunch of times. Now, he's got his word, God's word. It's the powerful self-expression of him. It's not only the means by which everything was created, but it's also the way through which he reveals himself. It's through his word. And in this background, we find perhaps the truest meaning for what it is for Jesus to be the word. Because in Jesus, we find the perfect embodiment of God's self-revelation. Now, as we get to the next line, right? That's just the first line. As we get to the next line, we see that the word, Jesus, it's not simply something external to God. Have a look. Verse 1b, the word was with God and the word was God. Now, Jesus is telling us that God the Father and God the Son, that's Jesus, that they are distinct, yet they are one in being. Jesus is 
is God, right? You shouldn't miss just how big of a statement that is here. However, the Old Testament affirms repeatedly that there is only one God, right? Worship him with all your mind, soul, strength and heart. Is that true? There's only one God? Of course it is. And yet, as we get into the, into the New Testament, God shows us that it's, it's not quite as simple as what the Jews thought it was. Because within the Godhead, there is a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, while we're on that, uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are not three different parts of God. Like with an orange, you have the, the peel, the, the, the flesh, and the seeds. It's not like that because you can't take an orange seed and say, here is an orange. That's just part of it. But with God, you can look to Jesus and say, here is God. You can hold up the spirit and say, here is God. Now, nor are the Father, Son, and Spirit different, simply forms of God. Like God puts on a different mask or, or, or a different character, depending on what day it is or what he feels like. No, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they coexist. And while we're on it, each of them also have different roles according to the, uh, as an outworking rather, of their eternal relationship. Now, for example, uh, who died on the cross? It wasn't the Holy Spirit, it was the Son. Nor did the Son send the Father into the world, but the Father sent the Son. Likewise, it's not the Father who came down at Pentecost, it was the Spirit who came down. Now, the Bible teaches that the Father is God that the Son is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, but there is only one God. And for some of us, I mean, still even for me, this might totally bamboozle you. But in one way, so it should. How can we, with our finite minds, hope to fully understand our infinite God? Now, by comparison, it's, it's almost like me carving a little man out of wood and then expecting this little wooden man to fully understand me and my mind and the way I work and my total being. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Now this may be out of our comprehension, this side of heaven, but this is the God who has revealed himself to us through his word. Now, let's take a step back. To, to call Jesus God, it may not sound too controversial or too um, strange to our ears, but make no mistake, it is a controversial statement. In the course of history, I mean, Jews, for Muslims, for, for Jehovah's Witnesses, for Mormons, for Freemasons, to say that Jesus is God, it's utter heresy. Because Jews, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they do not believe what the Bible teaches about or do not believe what we believe about Jesus. And so this is a big and divisive statement. Well, then in John 3, uh, verse 3 rather, John goes on to say both positively and negatively that Jesus is the agent of creation. Right? He's, again, different roles within the Trinity. The Spirit isn't the, the one through which all things were created, but the Son is. But the big point here that John wants to make is that Jesus is not part of creation. Right? He's not a lesser God created by a, a greater God. He is the eternal son. In verse 4 and 5, Jesus, John says, is also the source of life in our world. 
Life which is like a light that shines into the darkness. Light which screams out to all of creation, including us humans. You have a creator. You belong to God. Now these opening few verses of John's Gospel. I mean, first of all, you can see they are so rich. But they make a massive statement about Jesus, don't they? Who is he? He is the eternal God. The one without beginning. And this means that as people meet Jesus through John's gospel, that who they're really meeting is the creator of the universe. And that's what we remember as we celebrate Christmas. But we'll come to that in a little bit. And so there's, there's Jesus' identity. He's the word. But now as we get to verses 6 to 8, we find out the identity of another person who God sent into the world. Someone who came kind of before Jesus uh, and at this point, we also start to discover why the author John is writing in the first place. And so we're not at Jesus yet. This is sort of pre-Christmas stuff still. Uh, verse six, he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is a different John, not the author. This is John the Baptist. And the identity that the author John gives John the Baptist here is that verse seven, we're told he is a witness. He's a forerunner to Jesus. He's not Jesus. And to avoid any kind of confusion, uh, in verse 8, he kind of doubles down to make sure that his readers know John the Baptist is not the word. He's not the light. Perhaps John the Baptist's preaching was so powerful that people were tempted to, to think that he maybe was the word. But we're told, no, he's just a witness. Uh, and uh, so are many other people that we come to meet as we read through John's gospel. But this courtroom language of, of witness, of, of testimony, this is common in the New Testament, and especially here in John's Gospel. And in John's society, witness-bearing is a serious matter because it was the means by which the truth was established. Right? There was no CCTV camera footage back in the day, no dash cam footage, there's no electronic trail to kind of follow. You only knew what was true if you listened to those who were there. Now, in a courtroom, you need the truth so that you can get a verdict. And that's why the author John here is writing, in fact. A decision needs to be made. Who is Jesus? Right? It's a question that demands an answer. Now, John has already kind of shown us his cards from the very start. He believes Jesus to be the Word, God himself. And, well... We see in verse 7, John the Baptist's testimony is so that others might believe also. And this is sort of John's purpose statement too. In fact, he doesn't say it explicitly here but until the very end of, of all that he's written pretty much. Chapter 20, verse 30 of John's Gospel. In fact, if you've got your Bible there, turn there with me now. John chapter 20, verse 30. In fact, you'll see it if you've got a new a 2011 NIV. The, uh, the translators call this little section the purpose of John's gospel. And, and it is. After all that he says about Jesus, this is what he says. Chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John unashamedly wants his readers to know who Jesus is and believe in him. 
And in knowing Jesus, he wants them to continue believing. Now, for us, if we want to know what's true, we also need to listen to the people who were there. John the Baptist is a witness. And he still is for us today. In verse 7, when we're told that he was a witness so that through him all might believe, that all includes us. Now, what we read about the Bible, what we read in it about Jesus, it is truly evidence that demands a verdict by everyone. And there are only two possible ways that we can respond to Jesus. Just like in a courtroom, there's only innocent or guilty. There's no in-between. There's no maybe. Similarly, there are only two ways that we can possibly respond to Jesus. And that's what we see happen in, in these last few verses here. And our, our core identity actually depends on what we say about him. And so, verses 9 to 13, because the, the author John, he, because he loves identities, here he gives Jesus another one. You see it in verse 9. It's, it's another metaphor. Uh, all through the passage so far, John has been calling Jesus a light. And if there's any doubt, here it is, verse 9, he calls him the true light. And John tells us about the true light that he is coming into the world. And again, this is what Christmas is all about. This is why we pause. This is why we celebrate. Because the perfect embodiment of God's self-revelation, the eternal son, God himself, is coming to live with his creation. Now, don't you think in the course of history, this should be the single greatest event the world has ever seen? Shouldn't, surely, the Creator coming in, he'll be, everyone stop, everyone praise him. There's a parade, there's worship. Is that what happens? Have a look at verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now, when the writer, John, when he talks about world here, uh, he's not talking about kind of the whole created universe or this, this kind of big hunk of rock, dirt and water that we kind of reside on. No, he uses kind of, he has negative overtones here. And he's actually talking about, usually talking about our humanity and especially humanity and rebellion against its maker. And so, yes. A fallen world, sinful world, did not recognize their God. But worse than that, verse 11, even his own people did not recognize him. All right, the Jews, Israel, God's Old Testament co covenant people, the ones he spoke to through his word, they did not recognize or receive their Lord when he came. We see that as we keep reading through John's gospel. Now, for us, though, there's no ground to, to pause here and wave our fingers and say, oh, they should, have, they should have known better. Because Israel only typifies the folly that's in all human hearts, the folly of our own hearts, too. Hearts that muck things up with God and muck things up with other people around us. Hearts that are in desperate need of repair. And perhaps, perhaps you feel that at the moment for yourself. The continuing widespread rejection of Jesus in our societies is, is just a daily witness to the universal rejection of God, rebellion against him that we are all involved in. And so this is why Jesus coming at Christmas is such good news. And this is why we need the forgiveness that he offers us through his death on the cross. And now in verse 9, 
we're not told that Jesus is a light for some people. No, we're told that he's a light for everyone, for all people. And all people respond to the light, the revelation of Jesus, in one way or another. There are those who hate the light, who flee from it, not wanting their wickedness to be exposed. Like when you open up a cupboard door and the cockroaches see the light and they, they scatter. After all, owning that we are in desperate need of God and his forgiveness, it's, it's not comfortable. And many people would rather not think about it. They'd rather just turn their backs on the gospel. But that's not everyone. Because John tells us in verse 12 that some people did receive him. Some people did believe in his name. And here he's talking about people who have accepted Jesus for who he really is. The son of God. The people who've come into the light and let it expose the darkness of their own hearts. People who, seeing their own failures, have given their allegiance over to Jesus. In fact, for us as a church, this is what we saw and celebrated last week for our Baptism Sunday. As Brennan and Kylie uh, made a public declaration of who Jesus was for them. That knowing he died to bring them forgiveness, they now declare him to be Lord and Saviour of their lives. And if you were there, you might remember uh, what Brendan said as he shared his, his story. What it was like coming to know Jesus? He said beforehand, it was like walking around in the darkness of night with just a torch for, to see by. But coming to know Jesus, it was like the sun of the morning rises up and now everything is clear as far as the eye can see. And he makes sense of life and points us to our God. Now this sort of coming to Jesus is kind of what John is talking about here. And the result for those who do, well, have a look. This is the key verse I want you to take away. Verse 12, have a look at it. He says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you see that? When we see, acknowledge and put our faith in him, he gives us a new identity. And it's an identity that makes every other way that you're known pale by comparison. You're a doctor, a business owner, a grandparent, a minister, a Nationals Party member, a mum, a CEO. None of that compares to the new identity that you have in Jesus. Because when you stand with him, when you give him your allegiance, you become a child of God. Now, I'm sure many of you at the moment are hard at work, wrapping presents, getting ready for a few weeks' time when they're opened at Christmas. But the greatest gift the world has ever seen is the one that God has given to us. Because he offers us a new identity, a new status. God the Son became one of us so that we can become sons and daughters of God. Now, if you want a Bible verse to cling on to when, when things are hard, Something to hold on to when you're struggling for meaning and purpose in life. Friends, this is one worth holding on to. Whatever your week looks like, however wonderful or dreadful Christmas is for you, no matter what anyone else thinks of you, this is an identity worth more than anything. This is one that no one can take away from you. You are known and loved by your Creator. One grain of faith in Jesus is worth far more than a diamond, even the size of the world, 
In fact, if you strung a thousand of them together, they would be worth nothing compared to being known as a child of God. In our passage today, we were told that John the Baptist, he's a witness. Jesus is the word. He is the true light. And if I believe in him, I am a child of God. And so if that's true for you, I want you to hold on to that tightly. Because that's amazing, isn't it? But if you're still working out what, it, what that would look like, what it would look like to trust in Jesus, I want, you to, I want you to reach out. I want you to send us an email, jump on our website, jump, find us in Facebook, send us a message, because I'd love to sit down and talk with you about that. Or at least, I'd love it if you could join us uh, online or in person. I keep walking through as we explore just a little bit of the richness of John's gospel over the next coming over the coming weeks as we lead into Christmas and then beyond that into the new year as well. Friends, I hope that you'll join us in that. I hope that you've been encouraged because in Jesus, we can have that new identity as children of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that it was your initiative to make us your sons and daughters. That's, that's possible for us through your son Jesus coming into the world Thank you that we can celebrate that this Christmas time, that we can remember that. Help us as well, Lord, to hold on to that great truth that when we know him, we are sons and daughters of you. Father, thank you that you do speak to us through your word. Help us to hold on to that and dwell on that into this week, through the Christmas season, into the new year, and continuing on. Father, help us never to leave your word but hold on to it as it shows us who you are and who you make us to be through Jesus. Amen. Well, having heard God's word, we go now to another time of praise.
I'm Simon and I'm Lou and we want to talk to you about the next installment of Next Gen Uganda in 2023. The last couple of years has seen COVID impact Next Gen but in God's providence Andrew Kununara has been running small Next Gen style conferences in parishes and archdeaneries. This year Andrew has urged us to come back and be involved with the Next Gen conference that helps train youth leaders and train the trainers for Next Gen. At the moment, the Next Gen Conference is a crucial cog in our partnership with our brothers and sisters in the southwest of Uganda. The conference started in 2009 and has been running almost every year, except for the interruptions from COVID. Andrew Newman reports that when he is in parishes and even when he talks to college students, the people that really show confidence with the Bible have all come through the Next Gen Conference. My recent trip to Uganda in July, I was able to meet with Andrew Tanunura in uh, Uganda. He's the uh, Children and Youth and Health Director in the North Kigizi Diocese. And we talked about Next Gen, particularly about the importance of having good strand group leaders, uh, biblically faithful Bible teachers. And I was really excited to see that Andrew has identified that there's a lot of mature Christian teachers in the North Kigizi Diocese who are stable in their job and who have a desire to serve God in their parishes. Along with teachers inviting delegates from right across the diocese. Now he would really like to see them trained to be faithful handlers of God's word and so he's invited them to come along to the Next Gen Conference. It's got to be a great blessing to the church over there as Andrew conducts this ministry and we see God's word being handled well and going out into the parishes. Hey, hey, hey.
The next-gen model is actually very simple, yet it provides a comprehensive way to faithfully teach the Bible to others and so that the Bible teachers can, ha can have confidence that they are faithful to what God is saying in His Word and also package that mes message in a way that their hearers can understand. As the conference matures, we are actively seeking to hand the leadership over to the Ugandan Church. Since 2018, we've been training local leaders, and while COVID has given the conference a bit of a speed bump, we continue to push to train local leaders. One of my roles is to make sure the Australians going across to Uganda are skilled in training trainers. Now, we can't do this alone. We need your help. We know that some people, some of you have been supporting the Next Gen Conference for many years, and for that, we're very grateful. You can primarily offer support by praying for the 180 or so delegates that are going to come along, the trainers in country in Uganda, and for the Australian team as they prepare and then go across in, gen in January. You can also give financially by sponsoring a delegate, where you'll get a photo of the delegate and some prayer points next year, or you can simply con contribute to general funds. Uh, and that's going to help cover the costs of the Australians as they go across to Uganda. If you'd like to support financially, you can talk to a team member if they're at your church or to your local minister, or you can pick up the next the North Kijiji update and look for the QR code, and that will take you to the Diocesan website where you can give financially that way. But just make sure that you note your support with the words Next Gen or North Kijiji or something like that so that it goes to the right place. Thank you so much for partnering us with this really important ministry. What you're doing makes a real difference. It's making a spectacular difference, in fact, on the ground in Uganda as our brothers and sisters become better handlers of God's word. May the Lord grant you great joy as you be partnered together in this ministry. Friends, as we come to a time of prayer now, I do hope that you'll keep the North Kigizi Diocese and our partnership with them in prayer. Uh, you keep the team that are heading over there in your prayers as well, as we seek to love and encourage our brothers and sisters around the world. Well, as we come to that time of prayer now, uh, a blue screen will come up in a moment as usual. Do pause and be praying for things in your own life. Be praying for things in our town, in our country, in our world. Be praying that God is glorified through all of our lives in what we do, what we say, and in our interactions with others. Friends, there's heaps to give thanks for, heaps to be praying for, and especially in the life of our own church. Uh, do grab your bulletin. Hopefully, if you've got the email, uh, that you can, you can see the things that are going on there. Uh, let's go to a time of prayer, and then we'll finish in another time of praise.
Well, friends, let me encourage you by finishing with some words from Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 14. He says, Paul says here, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. My friends, I hope today has been a great encouragement for you, a great reminder for you of the new identity that you have when you stand with Jesus. My friends, have a great week. We look forward to seeing you next time.